look at Mark chapter 7, verses 24 to 37 today, under uh, the title, The Healing Touch of Jesus. So I invite you to turn there. If you have a, don't have your own Bible, it's page 998 in the Black Bibles that are in front of you. And rather than read the whole passage in advance, which typically we do, I'll just read these two, um, two parts of it as we deal with each separate one. So go ahead and turn there, page 998, and you can have that in front of you. Now, Jesus does a lot of healing in the Gospels. If you've been reading through with us, that's probably something you note. I, I mentioned last week that you typically read just right through the Gospel of Mark or, uh, or Luke or Matthew or, or John or whatever the case may be. And as we read chronologically, it's kind of a mashup of sorts. And so you might be in one for a little bit and then skip over and see a similar thing. It's a little more difficult to trace the themes in a particular book, but it certainly brings out sort of how Jesus is doing his work as we lead up to the greatest work that he'll do in the next few chapters. But when he bursts onto the scene and says, look, the Messiah has arrived, part of how he validates or verifies or proves that he really is the Son of God is the authority that he demonstrates over all kinds of things. One of them is authority over sickness. And he's somebody who can actually heal in a way with a word that nobody who is uh, medically inclined can do. And that's one of the validations that he is, in fact, who he said he was. And what he demonstrates in the process of doing these healings, though, is that healing goes more than skin deep. It's not just the physical part where he's meeting us. And yet he meets us at our surface point of need. For those of you who have been to India, since we have a team from India here as well, this is something that you'll see. If you go into that context, you see that Jesus meets us at a physical point of need to demonstrate that he can do much more than that as well. It's often the entry point, but he doesn't stop there. And that's a, a whole lot of what last week's passage was all about. I hope you were here and able to listen to that. Um, if not, I encourage you to go back just to see the backdrop as well of how Jesus was interacting with Peter, who was at the water's edge, and said, no, faith means more than just staying there. Come on out with me to the deeper waters, cast your nets. And that's what faith is going to look like in this journey, this process. And it is, it is a process, right? I mean, those of you who have stood up and talked about how you've seen God at work, there's a process to this entire process, it's interesting because some of the healings that Jesus does even demonstrates that. Uh, in Mark chapter 8, when he's going to heal a man who's blind, he does it in stages. First he does one thing, and the man can see some, and then he does a little bit more, and he can see a bit more clearly. And that's just before Peter makes this amazing declaration of faith, the same man we saw last week who goes out to the deep waters. And Jesus says, who do you say that I am? People are saying, Elijah, some saying John the Baptist, or whatever. I mean, the words out on the block. What about you? Who do you say that I am? And Peter makes that amazing declaration. He says, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the long-awaited one. You're the Son of God. You're the one through whom all creation was made. You're the Alpha. You're the Omega. When he said, you are the Christ, he's saying all that stuff that was pictured of Christ from the very beginning, who was God in the flesh now. 
incarnate. And Jesus says, that's great. And then immediately begins talking about having to go to the cross. And Peter says, no, it's not going to be that way. You don't understand. So on the one hand, he said, yeah, you're God. You're in control of all things. And then Peter says, now nah, I got news for you. You've, you're, you're delusional. And so here's Peter, a living, walking demonstration of the, the kind of crisis of faith that we probably all go through, even if we've said, you are the Christ. There's a process to this process. And that's because Jesus, when he comes to deal with us, isn't just satisfied with the skin-deep stuff. He wants to get to the heart, right? He wants the long-term process of molding us more into the image of Christ himself, taking us to deeper waters. Jesus has a holistic approach to healing. It's not just one-dimensional. And as you enter into relationship with God, I think you can probably talk about that. I'm guessing if we just said, all right, let's stop right here and everybody talk about how healing in your life has been more than one-dimensional. And that, is there anybody here who feels like there's no more any part of their lives that's broken that needs ongoing healing? He gives us what we need because he knows our hearts. And he gives us two pictures of what that looks like, two scenes, and we could pick a lot of them, but we're going to look at these two just briefly together. The first is uh, 24 to 30, where we see Jesus interacting with a Gentile woman. And he brings healing to her, and he does it with a touch of humor, it seems, as you read this. And so let's take a look at that. Jesus, in verse 24, left that place. And went to the vicinity of Tyre. He entered the house and did not want anyone to know it, yet he could not keep his presence secret. In fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an evil spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek, born in Syrian Phoenicia. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. First, let the children eat all they want, he told her, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. Yes, Lord, she replied, but even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then he told her, for such a reply, you may go. The demon has left her daughter. She went home and found her child lying on the bed, and the demon gone. What relief for her to go back and see her child who was sick is healed. And uh, this is really, this scene is a massive contrast from the previous chapter, and you can probably skim and look back just a little bit right, right before this, the verses before, the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, who have the right pedigree, they're Jewish, they've been following God's laws, they have Abraham as their father, they're God's chosen people, um, they obey all the commands and then add some as well. They're in positions of honor. They're blatantly told by Jesus in this passage just before that you're hypocrites and false worshipers. They're steeped in pride, and their hearts are far from God. And right, right, that's right before it. And now then we see this Gentile woman. So Gentile means non-Jew, non-pedigreed. And in fact, the cultural dog from a Jewish standpoint, that was the lingo for non-Jews. And Jesus commends her for her faith. So people that have it all together and the right pedigree, you're hypocrites. A woman who's an outsider, unclean, Jesus says, she gets it. She has faith. 
And how do we get here? You know, Jesus leaves. Again, his tongue lashing of the Pharisees. He heads to Tyre in verse 24. He's going into a home, and he's trying to get some time away, but that's not going to happen. Even though he's left Jewish territory and entered now into Gentile land, he's still in high demand. And this Greek-speaking Syrian-Phoenician woman, a Gentile whose daughter is possessed by an unclean spirit, comes and falls at his feet, begging to drive out a demon from her daughter there in verses 25 to 26. She's breaking all kinds of protocol by approaching Jesus this way, but this is Mama Bear. Anybody ever seen Mama Bear come out in another person? Or maybe you are Mama Bear at times, somebody who might even normally be pretty placid and easygoing when something happens and you cross the line against one of the cubs, look out. There's a reason when you're out in Yellowstone, if you see a mother with cubs, <laughs> you start breathing a little heavily because she's going to protect and that's what's coming out here. And the tense indicates in verse 25, it was likely more than once. In fact, in the parallel version in Matthew chapter 15, the disciples urge Jesus to send her away because she keeps crying out after them. So it's like she continues begging, continues coming over and over again. In verse 26, she begged or kept on begging Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. She won't leave him alone. Heal my child. It's a shortened version of the parable in Luke 18 and the persistent widow. She keeps coming back to the unjust judge again and 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 again. And it could get irritating, but that's exactly what happens to the judge. And he says, fine. And Jesus uses that as a parable to say, don't give up praying. Don't give up. It's the point he's trying to make here. And then here, when he has this Gentile woman, he says, this is what faith looks like. Don't give up. Keep coming back again and again and again. Fly the plane till it crashes. Is that a thing that pilots say? This mom keeps coming and coming. When she finally gets to Jesus, he has this rather interesting dialogue with her. In verse 27, it's interesting to me anyway. He says, first, let the children eat all they want, for it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. I mean, what in the world does that mean? That comes across as rather offensive. And this is, in fact, how Jews often refer to Gentiles. In the parallel account, Jesus clarifies, again in Matthew, by giving an order of priority for his mission. He has come for the lost sheep of Israel. I read that in John chapter 10 for the call of worship as well. Now I've come for my sheep. And there is, Jesus enters into time and space in a historical reality. He's a descendant of the line of David and Abraham all the way back to Adam and Eve. He's the seed who was the seed of the woman, and he's coming to a group of people at a particular time as the fulfillment of all their expectations. In fact, as you read through the Gospels, that's what you see. It, this had to be this way to be fulfilled in the historical context of the people of Israel who've been chosen by God in a specific time, a specific place, for a specific reason. This is who Jesus is. He's the Messiah that's been anticipated. And his mission now, as the fulfillment of their expectations, is to come to first to those whom God 
has said, you are my people. You know, Paul later acknowledges that the gospel's first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. I mean, there's an order of priority. Jesus comes here, reveals himself to a group of people who are looking for him, and says, here I am to them. And we often put ourselves in the Jew category when we read this. Have, do you do that a lot when you read the Bible? You're like, oh, yeah, we're in the Jewish category. But if you're not biologically Jewish, you're the woman in the story, right? You're the non-Jew. You're the Gentile. We have no biological pedigree. I, I don't. And Jesus is telling her in rather stark terms his primary mission is to the children of Israel. He must feed them first. That's where he's going. Then, when they are fed, those who aren't sitting at that biological table, as it were, they get food as well. And as a mom, she can identify, right? Feed your own children first. And what's so ironic about her reply is that she gets it more than the people who are at the table already. He's just encountered all these people who are the sheep of Israel, and said, here I am, and they've said, we don't want your food. And he says, okay, then I'll go to those who will receive it. Her reply, yes, Lord, but even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Now, if that isn't said with a smile or in some measure illicit one from Jesus, honestly, I don't know what would. This is the healing touch of Jesus, but it's the healing touche in this case, right? He probably says touche. You get it. You realize that in order to come to me, you come completely empty-handed. You don't have any right or claim. You're not coming with a pedigree. You're not coming with having said, look, I've done all this stuff so I deserve and earn it. You're just coming with somebody who's empty-handed and say, I have nowhere to go but to you. You get faith. You're a picture, a living demonstration of what faith looks like. And Jesus responds in verse 29 for such a reply. You may go, the demon has left your daughter. Even in the face of this you know, epithet that's a little charged, this woman responds with remarkable humility and faith. And I know that because in verse in Matthew chapter 15, we read, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. That's in 1528. She's not talking about how great or worthy she is. She just comes empty-handed. She doesn't come with a long tradition of church attendance, but comes instead with a heart that's willing and needy. Remember last week, we suggested from the text that one of the barriers to going to deeper water is pride. You know, what, I, what I've earned, what I deserve. That can be a barrier to faith. The children at the table personified by the Pharisees, they're unwilling to eat the food that's being served to them. The bread of life is there sitting with them. But the woman will, even if it's the crumbs. She'll believe. She'll trust. So Jesus meets that need, that physical need of her daughter. And although we don't know the rest of her story, we can be assured that he'll continue showing her the deeper needs of her heart in the days to come. So here's a little encounter of Jesus and a Gentile woman healing with a touch of humor. But that's not the only story here. There's kind of a layered one as well, a second narrative, a, a picture 
of what it looks like to receive the healing touch of Jesus. But this time it's with the Gentile man, and it's healing with a touch of compassion. This starts in verse 31. And here's what we read there. Then Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre, so he moves on, and he went through Sidon down to the Sea of Galilee and into the region of the Decapolis. And there some people brought to him a man who was deaf and could hardly talk, and they begged him, again, more begging, to place his hand on the man. After he took him aside away from the crowd, Jesus put his fingers into the man's ears. Then he spit and touched the man's tongue. He looked up to heaven and with a deep sigh said to him, Ephrathah, which means be opened. At this, the man's ears were opened, his tongue was loosened, and he began to speak plainly. Jesus commanded them not to tell anyone, but the more he did so, the more they kept talking about it. People were overwhelmed with amazement. He's done everything well, they said. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak, which is exactly what the Messiah was prophesied to do back in Isaiah. He's showing again that I'm the one who was anticipated, and now he does it to a Gentile man. How does Jesus heal him with a touch of compassion? Here's some people actually bring a man to him who's deaf, couldn't speak. And what this man will need is very different than what the mother needed. And Jesus approaches him in a way unique to his situation. I mean, that's what's so beautiful about these gospel stories is there's a universal principle, obviously, here that Jesus heals us beyond skin deep. But that looks different for every person because he, he knows the brokenness that we bring along in this person's Brokenness is pretty obvious to everybody. So what does Jesus do? In verse 33, how does he heal him with a touch of compassion? Well, he affirms and he validates this man's dignity. I mean, he does this in two ways. First, Jesus takes him aside away from the crowd. Did you see that in verse 33? After he took him aside away from the crowd. <laughs> So this man's been an object on display. Everybody knows who that guy is and what his problems are, and everybody sees that, maybe makes fun of this individual. Who knows? Certainly somebody who's an outcast socially, and Jesus takes him away from the crowds, gets him alone, and says, this is going to be between me and you. No longer an object of ridicule, but somebody who the Messiah is taking aside and dignifying in a way that others would apparently never do. But it's not just that. The second thing he does is he physically touches the man. That's the rest of verse 33. Puts his fingers into the man's ears, spit and touch the man's tongue. And he's giving advance notice to this man like sign language and physical touch of what he's about to do, but he's touching him. He's treating him as if he's clean. You know, in Jewish law, this guy would be unclean. Don't touch this person. But he's, he's doing that. He, somebody who's starved for touch, he's touching, even though the whole culture would reject it. Did you know there's a, a California business called Cuddle Connection? Has anybody ever heard of that? Um, there may be other ones as well. I, I, I don't know. Um, a little business idea for you. They charge up to $80 an hour for hugs. People apparently pay that. So you can, and there's other models of it as well, um, just go to this place and you pay money to be hugged. 
You can have half-hour sessions as well, <laughs> apparently, that are <laughs> a little, little uh, you know, less affordable. Just go for an hour, 80 bucks. And apparently it's working, right? People go there. People are starved, apparently, for touch. They're willing to pay just to be hugged. I mean, that, you know, my language, love language is not physical affection. This would be awful for me to have to be hugged for $80. You'd have to pay me that much money to go get somebody to hug me for that long, and I'd probably even charge more for that as well. But if you're starved for touch, maybe it's a little bit different. I don't, I don't know what those in the leper colony feel like if they could speak to this story, knowing that they're rejected by society, and yet somebody touches them, maybe at risk to themselves. That's why they're untouchable, right? Because you have a problem that you could pass on to me. I'm not going to touch you. Jesus goes right for that person. And not only does he dignify him through approaching him, take him aside and put his finger in his ears and touches his tongue, but he empathizes with the man's hurt in verse 34. It's really pretty remarkable. I mean, look what happens. Jesus looks up to heaven, and with a deep sigh, he's going to speak a word of healing. But he doesn't just speak a word of healing, he has a deep sigh beforehand. He's looking up in reliance to his Father who has power over all things, and this sigh is a sigh of sadness. In the Greek, it's like a pitiful moan. It's the same thing that Romans 8 talks about. We're groaning, all creation's groaning, for healing, for restoration, because baked into the fabric of our existence is brokenness on every level. Profound, deep, penetrating brokenness. And we're groaning to be released from that brokenness. And this is the same groan Jesus gives as he sighs. He knows he's going to restore this person, but that restoration is physical. What other damage has been done? What other brokenness is there in this other, this man's life? The loss, the sense of being an outcast, the craving for connection, the isolation. And Jesus empathizes. And he knows, doesn't he? A time's coming when he'll take on that weight himself on the cross. Maybe a little foreshadow of what he's going to experience as he takes on this man's burdens by entering into his reality. The same kind of sigh back with Mary and Martha when they lost their brother Lazarus and tasted death. And Jesus is moved and troubled there as well. He's disturbed. Things are not as they should be. This shouldn't be this way. This is not right. There's something wrong. And that's not just a theory. He's taking on that reality and he's embracing it. In his person, he's groaning and feeling all of that with him. And he can do something about it. He doesn't leave this man unchanged. And while these are stories of people who are obviously healed physically, more than that, they're stories of a Savior who heals the more profound brokenness in our lives. If we'll but come to him. 
I mean, the woman's brokenness goes beyond just a child who was tortured. It's not just that. Even in Jesus' words, her own identity was subjected to deep alienation by an entire culture. You feel like you're on the outside looking in? And Jesus says, you know what? You're included in me. In me. You have a seat at the table. These other people who by pedigree should have forfeited their right come and sit at the king's table. You're no longer a dog. You're a child of God. You're a daughter of the Most High. You have the spirit of sonship. You have faith. And by faith, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And you are a son or a daughter of God. Come eat at my table. These healings are just temporary if they only go skin deep. But Jesus is after the heart. He's healing the deeper wounds of shame, alienation, pain, loss, fear, unforgiveness, prejudice, loss of identity. They're all here in these stories. (laughs) So, of course, it makes somebody wonder this morning when you come to a text like this, what about you? You know, where do you need healing? Where do you need the Son of God, the Messiah, who's willing to enter into that space and do some work on it, to to touch you in a way that nobody else could even get close to because you know the barriers you've put between yourself and others as well, and Jesus can crash through those. Maybe you've never let Christ approach with that initial touch. Or maybe you have, but you know he's not done. Are you willing to approach him? Just let him search you and meet you at the deeper levels to go to deeper waters. In order to seal and secure those deeper healings, the one who heals our brokenness had to be broken. He had to know the alienation as well, the rejection on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He knew what that was like. He became a dog, right? Tim Keller puts it this way. The son became a dog so that we could be brought to the table. He became mute so that our tongues can be loosed to call him king. Don't be too isolated to think that you are beyond healing. That's right. On the one hand, don't think, not me, I don't qualify. Of all the people in all the world, of all the time, I'm out. You know, interestingly enough, you're thinking too highly of yourself in that respect, right? That's called false humility. Nobody, I'm the only person who doesn't qualify. And then don't be too proud to accept what the gospel says about your unworthiness. Don't be so proud that you say, you know what? I actually am at the table. I'm a pretty good person. I deserve to sit there. Well, your pride's getting in the way. (laughs) You don't deserve that at all. You're actually quite unworthy. Don't be too desperate to accept what the gospel says about how loved you are. And here in the gospels, we see Jesus driving this point home. Again and again, there's a redemptive storyline to be worked out in the world as a whole. There's a big story, but as well as in your life in particular.
And he's doing that. He's working that out. Since he knows our hearts, he'll bring his healing touch in unique ways that apply intimately to each of us. That's what a good shepherd does. He is doing something unique. Something not unique and something unique. (laughs) Both. What's he doing? What parts of you are you unwilling to let Jesus give a healing touch to this morning? Are you surprised at all, Ben, that you still wrestle with some of the bitterness, the shame? But he can do it. He's saying, come, all you who are weary and wounded, broken, don't wait until you're better. Come now. And in me you'll find all kinds of healing as I can bring my healing touch. Let's pray. Father, we ask humbly that you would heal us today. And here we are. And the wounds that we have are deeper than oftentimes we even understand. And perhaps we feel afraid that if we let you expose them to us, we'll lose ourselves. But what the gospel says is that actually the opposite is the case. It's there that we'll find who we really are. Uh, There's nothing to fear. Jesus speaks often of this as well as we read through the gospels. Don't be afraid, and that seems to be multi-layered. Don't be afraid of how I'll work in your life. Don't be Uh, afraid of what may come next. Don't be afraid of the past. Don't be afraid of me. I'm a good shepherd. We confess that we have followed bad shepherds, sometimes our own desires and uh, our own solutions, and they just don't work ultimately. And we pray that you'd expose that reality to us sooner rather than later so that we can be driven to, uh, to eat at this table with a good shepherd who created us, who knows us, and who pursues, uh, who pursues us to the end. So bring your healing touch in us this morning. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.